0: you will, open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Today we're going to look at the way to true happiness, the way to true happiness. <clears throat> and I prayed that I'll, my voice will make it through this service. For about two weeks now, I've been having uh, allerg- uh, allergies worse than usual. Uh, I discovered in my first uh, pastorate that I was allergic to goldenrod. I came in to preach one Sunday, and I was standing at the pulpit, and uh, I noticed I began to kind of start sneezy and get all choked up, and I noticed people in congregation were, and right in front of me was a nice arrangement of goldenrods that someone had brought to decorate the Lord's supper table that day, and uh, then that's when I realized I don't tolerate that very well. (coughs) I'm going to read, uh, this is the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we call it the Beatitudes. It's the attitudes that we're to be like, that we're to have. The be attitudes. And so today we look at this part. The Sermon on the Mount covers chapters 5, 6, and 7. And this was delivered by Christ on a mountain setting. And, and then uh, these 12 verses sort of set forth the principles for living in God's kingdom. How you enter the kingdom of God as well as how you conduct your our lives on this earth as a part of god's kingdom even as we are a part of the spiritual kingdom of god beginning in verse one the bible says and you'll notice that these are paradoxical statements most of them are um, they seem to contradict like "happy are the humble for instance if you look at the outline there in your bulletin happy are the humble happy are the sad happy are the meek happy are the hungry happy are the merciful Happy are the holy, happy are the peacemakers, and happy are the harassed or the persecuted. Those, Some of those, many of those seem to be things that are contradictory, that that just doesn't seem to be the way to true happiness. But Jesus lays these principles, this platform, this policy, these principles for entering the kingdom and living in the kingdom that I believe I know are expanded on throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount as well as in other parts of the New Testament. Verse 1 says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today for your word. And as we look at this part of the sermon given by our Lord We pray, God, that you would help us to understand fully what is meant in these short statements that Jesus makes, these statements that are full of truth, and we know from comparing other parts of Scripture, we have a fuller meaning of what these words mean. Lord, we can put ourselves in the place of the hearers in Jesus' day, as they were hearing teaching like they'd never heard before. And they all knew that it had to, this man did not teach like other teachers they had of that day. That his, the truth that he taught went deep. The insight was insight beyond a human mind could comprehend. And so, Father, I pray that you'd open our minds and open our hearts, God. And I pray if there's anyone here today that's not a part of your kingdom, they've never submitted their lives to your rule and your reign and that today would be a turning point in their lives, a day of transformation, a day of new birth. And Lord, for those of us who are part of your spiritual kingdom, I pray, God, that we would be reminded of how you desire for us to live. Lord, that we would be diligent to live in a way that would show that we are citizens of your kingdom. Lord, that we are your children. We are, we are to reflect you, God, in our life. And I pray this today in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we see Jesus given his platform, his policy, his principles, his, the practice for those who belong in the kingdom of God. And by the way, the way you get into the kingdom of God is through the new birth. The way you become a part of God's family, the way you become a part of the kingdom of God. God is ruling and one day his rule is going to come in a literal way to this earth and the prophecy from the Old Testament that says that he will, he will reign from the throne of David forever and ever. He will rule over this earth and he is going to have a millennial kingdom where we, the church, will come back with him and we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years on the earth as a part of culmination of all the things that God is going to bring together and so to be a part of God's family to be a part of God's kingdom you have to have a heart change you have to have a new birth you have to have a birth from above we can't pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps we need a change that only Christ can bring a transformation of the inner man because the outward change in our lives has to start on the inside And God places when we repent of being a sinner for failing to glorify God. And we invite Christ to come into our life who is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the God-man who came from heaven. His source was heaven. His beginning was in heaven. Actually, he had no beginning or end. He's eternal. But he existed as God in heaven from eternity past. And he came to this earth. He humbled himself and became a human being. He, became, he came to rescue sinners. He came to pay a ransom for our sin. He came to seek and to save those who are lost, separated from him in the darkness of our sin that we've inherited from Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned, that sin was passed on to every person, and no one was bypassed. Every one of us in this room coming into this world with a sin nature— we are born sinners. We there's a bent in our hearts towards sin. And only Christ can come in and change the human heart, cleanse us from our sin. Put new desires in our heart and give us a new purpose, new meaning to life. If you're here today, you've never publicly acknowledged Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Today's the day. The day is today. When we give our invitation at the end of the service, I want to invite you to come and stand with me. And say, Pastor, I I give my life to Jesus Christ. I receive Him. I know I need cleansing from my sin. I receive Him, and I believe on Him, and I receive Him as my Savior and my Lord. When Jesus went up on the mountain, it says He saw the crowds. He saw the crowds. Jesus always saw the crowds. He saw people that were like sheep without a shepherd, he wept over Jerusalem when he saw the spiritual needs of that people. Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the multitudes. And I want you to know Jesus sees every one of us here in this place today. He has compassion for us. He loves us and he desires for us to have a relationship with him and to walk in that relationship, live in that relationship and let it be, affect our lives the way we live. So he saw the crowds, and he went up on the mountain where the crowds were. And then it says that after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the, the, the crowds were there. He's speaking to the multitudes, but his disciples came and sat down close to where Jesus was as he spoke to these, this large number of people. And he opened his mouth, the Bible says in verse 2, and he began to teach them. And here's what he said. And as we look at these principles, as we look at these conditions for entering the kingdom, as we look at, these, uh, at, at this teaching about how we can have true happiness, true blessedness in our lives. And that's what that word happy means. It means blessed. It means happy. It means uh, blissful, fortunate, joyful. It's it does not it's not a happiness based on circumstances, it is a joy and a happiness based on an inner relationship with God. The first the first thing Jesus says we see in verse three, and I've called it happy are the humble. Happier the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the humble. Several of these really issue forth out of a humble spirit, a humble heart. But it begins with, if we're going to enter the kingdom of God, we must, first of all, recognize that we are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. That we are spiritually bankrupt. We must realize that we are destitute of righteousness. Every person, there are no exceptions, when we come into this world in our natural, unregenerate condition. That is the way we are described. And so Jesus said, blessed are those who recognize that they are in spiritual poverty. That they have a spiritual need. That's the first step in coming to God. Coming to Christ in salvation is to recognize you have a spiritual need. The Holy Spirit of God brings conviction of sin in our lives. He convicts us of our sinfulness. He convicts us of our failure to glorify God. He convinces. He convicts us convicts us of pride. He convicts us of self-sufficiency. He convinces us and convicts us of our attempts to try to gain His favor by living a life the best we can, by doing certain good works and maybe even religious deeds, as many do, trying to earn the favor of God. But we never come to God in our own pride. We come to Him recognizing our spiritual poverty. Jesus is saying here, you can't be filled up until you're empty first, until you recognize that you're empty. In Psalm 34, 18, the Bible says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Has there ever been a time in your life when you felt the convicting presence of God in your life? I can remember one time in our original building structure before this structure, I was sitting in a pew back on this side, and during the service of revival, a a preacher was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I began to literally shake in that pew. My whole body was trembling because I realized that I was a sinner. For the first time, I understood I went to church every Sunday. I gave my tithe every Sunday on that dollar allowance that I got. And I was in Sunday school. I had a 10-year record that I never missed a Sunday in Sunday school. All those things didn't mean a thing apart from a true relationship with Christ. And so I was just trembling there. Now, I didn't go forward in the invitation that night. But when I got home, I told my parents that I knew that I needed Christ in my life. I needed to become a Christian. So my father took me through the plan of salvation, the Roman road and through the various scriptures in Romans and show me that all of sin and the wages of sin is death and that Christ died for my sins and, and uh, I could either have the free gift of God or I would, I would have to take the punishment for our sins, my sins. I could either have the wages of sin or the free gift of God. And I didn't want the wages of sin. I didn't want the payment and the penalty for sin. I wanted the free gift of God, which was offered in Jesus Christ, who died died. He demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. He died for you. He died for all who will believe upon him. But we have to first recognize our spiritual poverty. In Psalm 51, the Bible says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken spirit. And a a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. That means God will not turn that down. He'll turn down our offerings. He'll turn down our songs of worship. He'll turn down other acts of religious expression if it's not coming from our hearts. Not coming out of a heart that has recognized our poverty of spirit. Who has not turned to Christ and believed on him. In James 4.10, the Bible says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. So humility is a first step in in coming to be a part of God's kingdom and having a relationship with Christ. The proud sinner tries to add Christ to his own pleasures, his own covetousness, his own immorality, his own pride, but the one who is poor in spirit is so desperate that he will give up anything to come to Jesus Christ. Basically, when you come to Christ, you recognize your spiritual poverty. You're giving up your own kingdom, the kingdom of the poor in spirit, to inherit God's kingdom. God has chosen to give the kingdom to those who humbly come to him and trust him. Have you done that? Secondly, there's a progression here. It begins by recognizing our spiritual poverty that we come into the kingdom of God. and By the way. That is something we need to constantly be reminded of even as believers because we are to continue to remember the spiritual poverty that we were in before salvation that that it would move us to obedience and move us to loving God more and more where we realize where we came from, our sinful, helpless, hopeless condition, how Christ lifted us out of that pit and the miry clay of sin and set our feet on a solid rock. So, we give up our own kingdom by recognizing we are poor in spirit, but we gain God's kingdom. And then, it, and then, once we recognize our spiritual poverty, there's a second step that we see in this passage, and it's found in verse 4. It is, it, it's happier they that are sad. Look what it says. Blessed are those who, who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's talking about mourning over sin. So when we recognize our spiritual poverty, our de- that we're destitute of righteousness, the logical progression is that we mourn and grieve over sin, that we have godly sorrow over sin. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I believe it is, there's a verse of Scripture that compares godly sorrow to worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow results in repentance. Worldly sorrow is just sorry that we got caught, or sorry of the pain that our sin causes us, the consequences that come to us. But godly sorrow leads to repentance. That's why it's not enough just to say, God, forgive me of all my sin, with no intent to change, with no intent to go a different direction. So, We recognize our spiritual poverty and we come to God mourning over our sin. That's why he says happy are the sad because those who mourn over sin are the ones who are forgiven of their sin. God forgives us. I'm talking about a deep grief for sin over our sin, in fact, and our sinfulness. In fact, the word that's translated there, mourn, is a word that's used to talk about a deep deep sorrow such as when someone loses a loved one that's very close to them a, a spouse or a child or someone that is very close related to them closely related that's the kind of mor- mourning it's a deep sorrow it's a repentant sorrow and we come to Christ in our as with nothing to present to God of good in our own all of our good deeds, the Bible says, all of our self-righteousness is like filthy rags in the eyes of God. So we come to him not saying, well, I'm not too bad of a person. I've witnessed to people and say, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a bad person. And I know their life. And I know their life's pretty bad. But they, they try to defend themselves But the Bible says we need a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And and we think about David in the Old Testament who mourned over his sin. He confessed it and he was cleansed. The happiness comes not from the sorrow. It's not from the mourning that this happiness comes. It's, It's from God's response to our sorrow. If you try to bottle up your sin, it will ruin your life. But if you confess your sin to God... You will sense the freedom and joy of forgiveness. In James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, hear what the word of God says. James 4, verses 8 through 10. Verse 7 says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. But verse 8 says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know what a double-minded person is? He thinks one way when he's at church. And he thinks another way when he's away from church. He acts one way when he's at church. He acts a different way when he's not at church. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The way to true happiness is to be sad. To be sad over your sin. And to come to God in your sadness and let Him cleanse you and let Him renew you and refresh you and transform and change and put His life in you. And by the way, mourning over sin continues. After we have been justified or saved or rescued from sin, once we're a Christian, we still should mourn over sin. We should mourn over the sin that we, that we still see in our lives and the sin that we see in the lives of others. Because what grieves God should grieve us. And it should affect the way we live. <clears throat> so the Bible tells us if we express sorrow over your, our sins, that we'll receive the comfort of God. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest, spiritual rest. When we come to the Lord, we who labor over... And are burdened down by the guilt of sin. Christ says, I will give you rest. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. And I will give you peace. I will remove the guilt. And I'll give you peace. Because Christ paid for our guilt of sin. So only mourners over sin are happy. Because only mourners over sin have their sins forgiven. And then we see there's a third progression here. And he says, happy are the meek. It means gentle. Happy are the meek. Happy are the gentle. And you see, there's a progression here from recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy, our spiritual need, mourning over sin, repenting over sin, coming to God with our sin, and then in meekness submitting our life to God's will. When we come to Christ, we are submitting our life to Him. Meekness. Think about a horse. I've ridden a horse a few times in my life. I'm not very good at it. <clears throat> it's Cindy, Dan, in here today, she rides horses. Well, anyway, they ride me, actually. I just hold on. <coughs> but a horse, we, we hear it spoken sometimes that that horse is a tamed horse. He's a broken horse. You know what that means? It means he once was wild, but now he's broken. He's tamed. He's meek. He's gentle. And you see, when we come to Christ mourning over our sin and we're forgiven, then out of meekness we submit to Christ because of what he's done for us, his forgiveness. We stand where we are submissive to him. We have a meek attitude before Christ. So meekness is different from being broken in spirit although the root word is similar there, but brokenness of spirit results in mourning and meekness results in seeking righteousness, which we'll see in just a moment. So a meek person becomes responsive to God. We start listening to God. We start putting ourselves at, at His disposal. We, we, we stand before Him. Lord, I'm, I'm, op- I'm open and available for Your will, Your purpose in my life. There's a meekness, there's a gentleness And also the way we treat other people. A meek person is one who does not assert himself over others for personal gain. It's a person that treats others with kindness and gentleness. And so in our Christian living, meekness ought to be a characteristic of of the believer. Every child of God. I think of meekness and humility and I think about the story of Corey Ten Boom You may have read her book called The Hiding Place. There was a movie about her life back in the 70s, I believe it was. She was from Germany. She was a believer in Christ, she and her sister. And during the Holocaust years, uh, when the Jews were being annihilated and put in gas chambers, and and, uh, she hid Jews in her own home, trying to keep them from being killed, from being uh, taken and, and taken to the prison camps and tortured and killed. And so she protected them. Well, when she at some point she was found out, and she and her sister were put in prison. Now after the World War II, uh, the prisoners were released. She was released, and you know her name became very famous for the work of kindness that she did and mercy, and how she risked her own life to protect other people. She had the book written about her, a movie about her. And somebody asked her one time. They said, "Corey, said how do how do you do you ever?" have any trouble with humility because of all the acclaim you've achieved. And here's what she said. I'll read it. <clears throat> I think I'll read it. Yeah. Okay, so they ask her this and here's what she said. She said, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of that was for him? And then she said, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I give him all the praise and all the honor. We're to be meek. We're to be a people of meekness, a people who are gentle, a people who are willing to take the lowest position and let Christ be exalted, not to take acclaim for ourselves and not to receive the praise for ourselves, but to praise for the Lord and give Him all the glory. Then we see, next... Not only does he say that the blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And all these these blessings that come in each of these statements just talks about the blessings that are are coming to the believer, that we're going to inherit the earth. What does that mean? Well, in the Bible, the scriptures tell us that one day believers will inherit the earth. the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Do you not know that you shall judge, we shall judge angels? And, of course, the answer to that is, yes, we will. That's what the Scripture is teaching. So although the, the earth will belong to us in the future, in the millennial kingdom, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, when we, the church of Christ and the believers in Christ, reign on this earth with Him, The kingdom, in a sense, is already ours. We're part of that spiritual kingdom. Christ's kingdom is where Christ rules and reigns. If he's ruling and reigning in your heart, then you are part of the kingdom of God. That's why the Bible says to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. We're to let Christ rule and reign in our lives. Then number four, we see happy are the hungry. Verse Verse 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Happy are the hungry, those who have a hunger for spiritual things, who have a hunger for righteousness, who realize that that we do not have in and of ourselves a source of righteousness, and we must come to the one who does, and that is God himself. Only in Christ can we achieve righteousness. And it's the righteousness that's, that's imputed to us. There's three types of righteousness. Imputed righteousness comes at justification. when The moment we're saved, the moment we believe on Christ and, and receive his salvation, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It's like a, like a bookkeeping transfer where all of his righteousness is put upon us and all of our sin is put upon him. And then there's a second type of righteousness, and that's imparted righteousness, and that comes in sanctification as we grow in holiness. As we grow in likeness, we are being sanctified, and we have this practical righteousness produced in us by the Holy Spirit who produces in us the fruit of the Spirit, and then one day we're going to have the, imp- we, there's an impending righteousness, which we will have one day when we get to heaven and we're glorified, and that's called glorification. So the Bible says, happy are the hungry, those who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's beyond themselves, that only God can give. And then we must realize out of meekness that the only hope that we ever have of knowing righteousness is to seek it from God. Happiness, by the way, is a byproduct of righteousness, a right relationship with God. So the only real happiness is available, that's available in life is in being right with God. People seek happiness from all different sources today. People seek happiness, they think you'll be happy if you're rich, happy if you have lots of possessions, happy that if you're successful, happy if you have a good job, happy if you have this or that, achievement, acclaim, whatever it might be. But none of those things are a source of happiness. Without Christ, you'll be a miserable person. There have been a lot of very wealthy people who have died miserable because they trusted in riches, they trusted in wealth, they trusted what man could achieve and gather and acquire in this life, and none of that brings happiness. Some people believe happiness is avoiding bad things. You know, if you don't have major problems in your life, you don't have troubles and trials, and you don't have... Uh, sufferings in your life and things go well for you then that's happiness but well, it's not you can listen you can have happiness and still have those problems and things it's your happiness that blessedness is talked about here is not dependent on circumstances it's a joy that we can have in spite of the worst of circumstances in our lives so he says blessed or happy are the hungry Those who have a hunger for God's word, who have a hunger for the righteousness that only Christ can produce in us. And we hunger and thirst after that. We have a love for spiritual things. We have a love for the Lord and a love for his word and a love for his church. And we want to know him. We want to grow in him. We want to be changed by him, ongoing, being sanctified, being made holy in our practical living Now there's a paradox here. Notice that it says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. The paradox is this, that yes, we hunger and thirst for righteousness and he fills us, he satisfies us. But then we still hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's an ongoing thing. It's sort of like when I eat a piece of coconut cake or a piece of coconut pie. I mean, it satisfies me, but I still hunger for more. I still have a desire for more. And in the Christian life, God does satisfy us as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. But that hunger and thirst, though we are being satisfied, there's always a hungering for more. More of that which satisfies, just like in the good foods that we enjoy, as an example. I ask you today, do you have an appetite for spiritual things? Do you hunger and thirst for God to produce His righteousness in your life? Do you want him to continue to change you as a believer and make you more like Christ? Do you want the fruit of the Spirit produced in your life? You need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then number five, happy are the merciful. We see this in verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those... Who, who are merciful because those who are merciful are those who have obtained mercy from God and we are merciful toward others because we are thankful for what God's done for us. We want others to be blessed with mercy because we've been blessed with God's mercy. So as citizens of the kingdom of God, we need to be merciful toward other people. The Bible is implying here that if we don't show mercy to others, God will not show mercy to us. And I think the, the underlying teaching there is if you truly receive the mercy of God, you will show mercy to others because God's life is placed in you and what God is a God of mercy and He, he reproduces His life in us and we become people of mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And then next we see in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, or happy are the holy. That verse says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Only the pure in heart are going to see God in his kingdom. Not those whose religion is external, but those whose religion and faith is internal. And then, it is, then it's worked itself and manifests itself outwardly. That's why the scripture says, let your salvation work, work out of you. Be worked out of you. Work out your own salvation. It's what it says in some translations. But it's saying, let the salvation in you work itself outwardly. Show itself outwardly. But it begins with a pure heart. And only Christ can give you a pure heart. Only he can cleanse you from your sin and give you his imputed purity. And only he can help you live a life of purity as you set your mind on the things above and not on the things of the world as you seek that righteousness that we talked about in in the previous point <clears throat> as you seek that god will he purifies our hearts we can't purify our own hearts only christ can in proverbs 29 verse 20 verse 9 the bible says who can say i have made my heart clean i am pure from my sin nobody can make their heart clean And he says, no one can do that. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin, the color of his skin? Or the leper, his spots? No, that's the way God made them. They can't change that. None of us can change. We can't change that. And neither can we purify our own hearts. It's only our hearts are purified by faith. In Christ we need to accept the provision of Jesus Christ on the cross that gives us positional purity and then for practical purity we need to let the word saturate our minds and sink deep into our hearts and we need to walk in fellowship with God walk in the spirit day by day and then next we see happy are the peacemakers verse 9 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. By the way, in verse 8, where it says they shall see God one day, we're going to see God face to face in heaven. And then the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Listen, God was, the, was a peacemaker. He, he made it possible for us to have peace made with Him. He has made it possible for the Peace to be between people that have all different cultural backgrounds and religious backgrounds and social backgrounds. God has broken down the, the walls there. And so we need peace with God and we need peace with our fellow man. We need peace with our fellow believers in Christ. We need to be peacemakers. In church, I encourage all of us to be peacemakers. Peacemakers where we are not a part of any division or any, anything that will break down the unity of the Spirit of God in His church. But we are the children of God. God has made peace with us, and we are to make peace with others. We need the peace, of, uh, the peace that comes from a relationship with God, and we need to help others also. Someone said it this way, those who promote God, the peacemakers are those who promote God's messianic peace. He was the Messiah. He came to to bring peace on earth. And then he came to bring bring peace in individual lives through the transformation of the gospel. And then finally, we see in the last three verses, happy are the harassed or happy are the persecuted. Look at those verses. Verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all manner of evil, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness must be willing to be persecuted for the righteousness that that comes to us that we live out. We have to be willing to, to stand for righteousness even when it's not popular got a little wasp right here in front of me. <clears throat> I think I'll stand over here. <laughs> it's a yellow wasp. <clears throat> but, but you know that we must be willing to be persecuted. When people say all men are evil against us, or they call us intolerant because we say there's only one way to salvation, one way to heaven, one way to be right with God, and it's through Jesus Christ. There are those who say you're being intolerant. When, the, when we stand up for what's right and wrong based on what the scripture says when we say a certain thing is wrong people will say well you're intolerant you Christians are intolerant and sometimes there's persecution I think I told you in a previous sermon about the chick-fil-a uh, the boosters of our high school football team wanted to sell the chick-fil-a sandwiches and and they wouldn't let them sell them because of their stand on homosexuality. They didn't just come out and make some grand statement one day, oh, we're against homosexuality and blah, blah, blah. No, they were interviewed by Baptist Press. And because that was a hot issue, they just asked them, what is... What is your belief about it? They just said, we believe what the Bible says. And they made a statement of what they believe. And now you can't sell their chicken sandwiches at a high school football game. And as I said in the previously when I told this, they were donating the sandwiches so that the boosters made 100% profit because they are community-minded. They are, they are based on Christian principles. They give back to the community. But they're persecuted, persecuted. Because of righteousness. And when you live for Jesus Christ, you're going to be persecuted. If you live a godly life, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.12, I believe it is, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You'll be persecuted when you live for Christ, when you take a stand, when your employer wants you to do something that's not right, something that's dishonest, something that's unethical and you say i can't do that because of my faith in christ for me that would be wrong to do but when you say that then you could lose your job you could be demoted you could be treated unjustly in some way maybe because you live for christ and won't participate in some of the social social things and culture that i've known men who have not been promoted in the air force that were godly men, and they were very, very skilled in what they do and very proficient, and yet they, they were not promoted to the next rank because they didn't fit in with the social life in the Air Force. They didn't fit in. They didn't blend in with what went on in the Air Force in social gatherings. They didn't make a big issue out of it. They just didn't participate. I don't know what it will be for you, but when you live a godly life, in some way, some manner or some fashion, you will be persecuted. When you stand for Christ, you will be persecuted because the world doesn't want to be reminded of their sin. They do not want to be reminded of their unrighteousness. And they do not want anyone to hold up a righteous standard for them because it makes them feel worse than they already do. It reminds them of how, what they're not doing, how they're not living, and what they should be doing. And we become the bearers of that news, and it is often spurned and hated. So I ask you today, where do you stand? Are you in God's kingdom? Have you come in the way we've described today? And are, if you're a child of God, living as a child of the kingdom, are you today ready to press on? And press on from one level of glory to another and live for Christ. Don't be satisfied with a mediocre life, but realize these are the standards for kingdom living. If we're going to be, if we're children of the King, we need to live like the King and we need to act like him and we need to let him reproduce his life in us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the clarity of truth that you've given us. And I pray that you would speak right now during this time of a decision and invitation. God, that you would bring us to the place of recognizing our poverty, our poverty of spirit, our spiritual poverty. Help us to mourn over sin. Help us to stand before you meek, not trying to defend ourselves, but submitting ourselves to your will. And Lord, help us to have a pure heart. Help us, O God. To hunger and thirst after righteousness and to be people who show mercy and people who are peacemakers and people that are willing to be persecuted for righteousness sake and i pray this in jesus name amen would you stand with me